Well, I am grateful, as always, to Aaron and uh, not only his prayerful and thoughtful preparation of our liturgy every week, but um, I know you are as well grateful for his faithful preparation and preaching through Obadiah last week. Uh, I'm sure it's safe to say that that was a first for everybody here, Um, and it's been something I hope that we have been ruminating on all week, but I think uh, that was good. Tonight we come to our second of the five one-chapter books in Scripture, and we are in the book of Philemon, and we are going to hear, as I just mentioned, its message on forgiveness. And if you wouldn't mind, so that it is fresh uh, within our minds as we walk through this, because I'm going to jump around rather than go uh, straight through 1 to 25. I am going to uh, here and there. Would you stand with me in the honor of God's Word and let's read uh, this letter again. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from you, or from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do do Mark and Arstic. Aristicus, Demas, 
And Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, we now come to proclaim your word, your word that is eternal and infallible and inerrant. And we believe that through it, you grant to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And we believe that it is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that we might be complete, equipped for every good work. We would ask that by it and your spirit tonight that we may be challenged and strengthened and encouraged. Use me in these moments as you see fit. In Jesus' name and for the sake of his church, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, within the letter, you'll notice in the back of your bulletin, we're going to look at three points. There are three things that I want us to consider in this brief letter. Uh, The first is we want to look at the forgiveness that Onesimus needs. Secondly, we're going to look at the forgiveness that Philemon can, uh, can offer or supply. And then third, we want to look at the challenge to forgive that Paul makes, okay? the forgiveness that Onesimus needs, the forgiveness that Philemon can supply, and the challenge to forgive that Paul makes. Uh, let's look first at the forgiveness that Onesimus needs. Onesimus, we've read twice now, was a slave of Philemon. And believe it or not, that doesn't tell us a whole lot about him um, because slavery at that time was very different than the slavery that is a part of our history. Uh, Slavery then had nothing to do uh, with race, and occupations, whether they be blue-collar or white-collar, whether they be uh, labor or trade or professional, could all have been at that time filled by slaves. So while we don't know specifically what his role was, we do know he was a slave. And at some point, he had become very useless He was useless to Philemon. Um, He he could have been lazy. He could have been a troublemaker of some kind. Um, But the bottom line was he was taking advantage of Philemon. He was taking advantage of this man that we'll hear about in a minute. Um, And he wasn't taking care of the responsibilities that were before him. And so it really makes sense. We're not surprised to find out that he... He runs away. It's no surprise to us that he runs away and he either steals a few things before he goes to pay for the trip that he's about to go on, or he steals something and um, he runs away to escape the consequences of his actions. But either way, he's on the run. He ends up in Rome. And somehow, but really by God's divine providence, he encounters Paul. And again, we don't know why. It could have been, he could have been arrested for being a runaway slave or his, um, you know, his criminal, criminal ways could have continued while he was in Rome and then he, he could have been thrown in prison with Paul or there could have been some other, um, some other consequence or there's something that we just don't know brought him in Paul's path. But either way, he's there with Paul by God's design, and while he's there, Paul leads him 
to the Lord. And I can just imagine how Paul shared the gospel, or at least a little bit of what Paul might have said to Onesimus. He probably said something like, look, you're, you're a slave on the run, and you're more than just a slave physically. You may not realize that, but you're a slave spiritually, and you are never going to be able to outrun or escape your bondage to sin by yourself. So because of that, let me tell you about Jesus. Jesus died to pay the debt on behalf of those who were enslaved to their sin. He died to redeem us and set us free. And if you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. And I can tell you from experience that if the Son sets you free spiritually, you are free indeed. Even if you were to remain a slave and even if I were to remain in this prison for the rest of my life, we are free when we look to Christ. Now there's another interesting providential facet of this story in that Paul and Philemon were friends as well. Actually, verse 19 seems to indicate that Paul had led Philemon to the Lord as well, just like he did Onesimus. And so this new triangle of mutual acquaintance and experience causes Paul to desire that these two spiritual sons of his reconcile. He wants them brought back together, even though Onesimus has apparently uh, over time, regained his usefulness. He's become useful to Paul. Uh, Paul's loved having him around. He's grateful that he's present. He's serving him, and more than likely, he's probably making his imprisonment bearable. But he knew it was best for him to return to Philemon. He knew that Onesimus and his debt, his, his debt need to be, need to be paid. And the relationship that he had with Philemon needed to be reconciled and his position needed to be restored because he was at once useless and now he's useful again. And then in verses 15 and 16, Paul actually says that, listen, this has all been a part of, of God's plan, his leaving you, his returning to you. This is by God's design. So Paul writes this letter and he hands it to Onesimus. He says, I want you to deliver this to Philemon. He says, you need to go with Tychicus. Tychicus is taking this letter that I wrote to the church there in Colossae, and you guys go together and deliver your letters. And that brings us to the forgiveness that Philemon can supply. Philemon was the leader, uh, in, or, or a leader, in the church at Colossae. And due to his owning of slaves, we know that he was well off, he was wealthy, and, but we can also assume that he was very generous and hospitable because one of the churches in the Colossi Presbytery met in his house. He had opened his home to the church, and in verses 1 to 7, Paul gives this description of this man, and we get an idea of what Onesimus has done and who he's taken advantage of. He's, Paul says, Paul calls him a fellow worker. And whom he loved. 
He says that he was a man whose faith was evident, and it was evident due to the love that he exhibited for the Lord and for the church there in Colossae, particularly that group in his house. Uh, Paul said he was personally blessed every time that he heard about Philemon. Right, word got out what Philemon was doing, and, and that he brought, it's a great, great phrase here, he brings refreshment to those in the church. And Philemon loved to hear about it. He, he thanked God. He says, I thank God for you. Right? He says, he thanked God for him when he prayed for him, and he prayed that their fellowship that they shared Right, the sharing of faith within that fellowship, that it would continue, that daily living, that arm-in-arm arm running the race of faith that we talked about throughout the book, or toward the end of Hebrews from 11, uh, in 11, 12, and 13. He, he was encouraging them to, to continue that, and he said that, this, that that running of the race and exhibiting his faith would cause them to grow, and one of the ways that he could exhibit that faith was through forgiving Onesimus. He says it's one thing to talk about forgiveness. It's one thing to call people to forgiveness. It's another to actually do it. And he says it would mean something to, to Onesimus, but it would also mean something to Philemon, and it would mean something to, to the church for this all to come about. It was a way that they all would be encouraged but we have to understand that this would be very difficult for Philemon to do because others are watching. And what I mean by that is this, forgiveness, particularly of slaves, was frowned upon. It wasn't something that was to be done. It, forgiveness, well, it meant dishonor and shame to the one offering the forgiveness. And that's, that's because it was well within the slave owner's rights, it was well within Philemon's rights to actually brand Onesimus right in the head and mark him as a thieving slave for the rest of his life. And that was the best case scenario. Onesimus could have been put to death. It was well within Philemon's rights. And he also had to take into into consideration, well, you know, what would the other slaves think? What would they do? If I, if I forgive Philemon, or if I, Philemon says, if I forgive Onesimus, what are the other slaves going to do? Are they going to take advantage of me? And what about Onesimus himself? Could he do it again? Could he take advantage of the forgiveness that I'm to offer? And who knows, maybe even could he become this perpetual whiner and wolf crier? And anytime something came up, am I going to have to deal with him over and over again? And so the welcome, the, the welcome that Paul encourages Philemon to extend and the restoration and restitution that he is asking him to give would that potentially would take place would be more than Onesimus could ever imagine. Not something that he would be anticipating. And the reality was he could show up as a runaway slave on Philemon's door, ready for punishment, with no way to pay the debt, and only with this letter in his hand. And in doing so, Philemon could supply the forgiveness that he needed. And he could give him the encouragement that he, 
he needed and desired because he could communicate and reinforce the fact that he was no longer a slave spiritually, but that he was a son and a brother. That they were brothers of one another. Because this new spiritual status, uh, it, it transcended his earthly status. Because what had happened spiritually and forgiveness transcended the institution of slavery itself. F.F. Bruce points out, he said, the atmosphere of forgiveness was one in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. Forgiveness was significant. Philemon could also supply the forgiveness that Onesimus needed by paying that debt himself, by wiping the slate clean. And if he didn't do it himself, he could at least take Paul up on his offer to pay it for him. And in the end, should Philemon follow through, the whole process would be this living, colorful illustration of the gospel, again, for Onesimus, for Philemon, and for the church. So we understand then the third consideration why Paul makes the challenge. Why does Paul challenge him to forgive? Verse 8 And Paul says that he has both the authority and the right as an apostle to command Philemon to do what he wants him to do and to do what he's about to ask him to do. But rather than command him, he simply says, I I prefer to encourage. I appeal. And in verse 14, he says he doesn't want to force him to do it, but he wants him to do it because he wants him to do it. All right, Philemon, I, I want you to want to do this. But even though it's not a command, even though it's an appeal, it's softer, it remains a challenge. He challenges Philemon. You need to do this. In verses 18 and 19, he acknowledges what Onesimus had done and what it had cost Philemon. And he knew, again, what the laws were and the rights Philemon had as a slave owner. And yet, he asked him to lay aside those rights. I want you to set those rights down. He says, I want you to do the difficult thing. And really, at that time, specifically, I want you to do the countercultural thing. And yet, he asks, he also asks as he appeals, he says, I, I, really, he's saying, I, I want you to remember. I want you to remember who you are, how you've been forgiven, and how you're now a leader in the church. Really, you need to do this. And in verses 20 and 21, Paul kind of tips his hand. He says, I know you will. I'm confident you will. Actually, I'm confident that you're going to do more than I've even asked. Right? Because we go back to the first seven verses. He, he knows the kind of man that he is. And as Hank and I were talking before, we, we don't have any just sure evidence. Right? There, there's nothing. We're not given anything that says that Philemon did it. Except that the letter's in the canon. And again, we're going back to Philemon's character. Say there's a pretty good chance he did. Because that was who he was. But notice at the end, again in verses 20 and 21, 
He says, I know that you're going to do more than, than I've asked you to do. But notice he also says, look, I, prepare a room for me. I'm hoping, pray, I'm hoping to come and visit. And what he's doing is he's saying, listen, I, I've challenged you, but I want you to know that I'm not asking you to do something that I'm not willing to come alongside you and walk with you through. I, I want to help in this. I know how difficult it's going to be, so I'm willing to take up my time and the resources, and I want to provide the accountability necessary for you to fulfill this appeal. That's how important this is. Now, I know that's brief. Right? Not like Obadiah, right? Um, a little simpler, a little more straightforward, something that we're even familiar with. And so I'd like to take the, the remainder of our time and and walk through these and, and apply them, but do it in reverse order. So let's look first at the challenge to forgive that we should make. What's the challenge to forgive that we should make? We tend to shy away from challenges like these. And we do so because we have this tendency to be overly concerned with what people think about us. And it's particularly evident when that challenge involves asking someone else to forgive. Because, as we've seen, though briefly, it's hard. Forgiving others is hard, but asking others to forgive someone else is hard. And it's hard because it feels and sounds insensitive and uncaring. It sounds um, and feels as if we're discounting the hurt. It sounds and feels as though we're discounting the pain that people experience. It's almost as if we're, we come across as callous and as if we're attempting to diminish what's gone on. And it doesn't matter how we phrase it. There's always that chance of interpretation, and yet, you and I have been called to be peacemakers. Christ has called us to be peacemakers, we, and, and uh, Jesus has says we, we've, been, we've been called to be peacemakers. Paul says that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, which means that we're to call people to be reconciled to God, and we're called to, to call people to be reconciled to others. And so we really should desire to see other people forgive one another. We should desire to see them forgive, and that's because the challenge to forgive is a challenge to give evidence of the faith that we have. To challenge someone to forgive is a challenge to, to see and to give evidence of them walking by faith, and that their faith is being worked out through love. Challenging other people to forgive is, is challenging them to show fruit of their salvation. Challenging them to forgive is, is a challenge to allow others to see how, how you or how they are being sanctified and how they're working out their salvation with fear and trembling. A challenge Giving a challenge to forgive is, is a challenge 
to others to, for them to exhibit what it is Christ is doing within them by his spirit, Christ who, through whom they themselves have been forgiven. And brothers and sisters, it's a challenge that we should be making even now. Even now, a time when retribution and retaliation and vengeance and violence and outrage and vitriolic criticism dominates the landscape. It's happening all around us. And our words and our actions should be thoughtful they should be caring, we should be compassionate, we should be measured and, and think through what it is that we should say and how we should say it, but it also should be scriptural and bold. Because the reality is, as we look at Philemon, and as we read this letter, and we see, even through our Old Testament passage in Matthew 18, as I referenced earlier, um, in all the places where we are, we are called to forgive, we, I think I can say boldly that, that the church, we are not loving each other or loving our neighbor or even we can't say that we're for the city when we ally or ally ourselves with organizations and movements and join in the planning and the promoting and the participating in activities that that cultivate and foster anger and bitterness, malice and outrage and division, all of which fester over time like a malignant terminal cancer. Our message is different. It's eternal. It's not temporal. The message that we're to share promotes true justice and true peace. And it's one that brings an all-encompassing rest, internal, external, soul, and body. And it's the only unifier and our only hope. And that message is that forgiveness and reconciliation is only found in Jesus Christ. Apart from Him, there is no hope. And our message is be reconciled to God. Receive His forgiveness that is offered in and through Jesus. And be reconciled to each other. Forgive one another as those who have been forgiven greatly in Christ. And that brings us to the second point, the forgiveness that we can supply. Forgiveness is something that we don't just call others to, it's, it's something that we exhibit ourselves. And again, we have to be clear that forgiveness isn't a matter of forgetting. Forgiveness isn't excusing it's not dismissing the action of others. It's not setting yourself up to be taken advantage of or hurt repeatedly. 
True forgiveness does not require the laying down or the elimination of godly justice or consequences of actions, whether those be natural or judicial. But what it does require is the laying down of our own demands and our own desires to avenge the wrong personally. And as I mentioned to the children, right, there is no limit as to who or how often. And again, that's hard. It requires resting in, resting in the Lord, who is the only just judge. It's as if, well, it, it is as we rest in our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, you know, we are able to do what He has called us to do. It's only as we rest in Him that we're able to do what He's called us to do. And what has He called us to do? We're to keep no record of wrongs. We're to not be resentful. We're to live peaceably with all. We're to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. Again, we who have been forgiven much, we're called to forgive others in the same way. We do acknowledge that there is a debt owed. But we, like Philemon, are to, are to pay it ourselves rather than seek vengeance. And as we do, we give evidence of our faith in Christ. We give evidence of our working faith that's within us. Because, brothers and sisters, we, we can make no mistake about it. This is a supernatural work of the Spirit of God in us. It is not something that we can do in and of ourselves or left to ourselves. And when we choose forgiveness... Well, actually, when we, when we think about it this way, when we choose to withhold forgiveness, we aren't hurting the ones who have hurt us, we're hurting ourselves. When we choose to withhold forgiveness, we're unable to move forward because we're living, and, living in and attached to the past. When we choose to forgive we put ourselves in, in the position of enforcer and prosecutor and judge and jury. When we choose to not to forgive, we really are saying, believing and saying that we know better than the Lord Himself. When we choose not to forgive, we allow that anger and bitterness and malice and division to take hold and fester again and it and it grows like cancer but when we forgive when we forgive and trust the lord to repay as he has said he will do and when we rest in the fact that christ is going to return, and He is going to judge the living and the dead. When we do that, we will experience peace and rest and joy, and we too will be exhibiting that colorful live picture 
of the gospel, right? To those we forgive, to ourselves, and to one another as the church. Finally, the forgiveness that we need. We all need to be, we all need to admit we need to be forgiven. All right, we need to be forgiven, of course, by God, because we all stand before a holy God guilty due to our sin. We need to not only be forgiven of the sin of Adam that we inherited and was imputed to us and that you know, that corrupted our nature and our character. But we also need to be forgiven of our actual sins that we commit. Those sins that we commit in thought, word, and deed. We need that one-time full and final forgiveness through which our union with Christ is secured. But we also need that ongoing that ongoing forgiveness, that continual forgiveness for the sins that affect our communion with Him. And we need to confess and repent of our sins once and for all, as well as confess and repent of our sins on an ongoing basis. And listen, if we don't admit that, listen to how John describes us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Basically, if we don't admit that we're in need of forgiveness, we're just lying. We're liars. But also notice what he says if we do admit it. He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is, of course, why we call non-Christians non to repentance. We call them to repent of their sin and to turn to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But this is also why we take the time every week in our liturgy, corporately and individually, to confess our sins and hear the assurance of the gospel. We need that. And secondly, not only do we need to be forgiven by God, but we also need to be forgiven by one another. We need to be forgiven by one another. We sin against one another in thought, word, and deed. And we have the responsibility. This is not something that that is the responsibility of those who have been sinned against, but it's the responsibility of those who sin against others to go to those who have been wronged and seek their forgiveness. We're to take initiative in that. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. We're to initiate and to seek the forgiveness that we need, not only for our benefit, not only that we might be forgiven, but again, for the benefit of those who are forgiving, because we've already said of the, we've already spoken of the benefit received by forgiving other people. So this is for us as well as for those who forgive. And in light of our current climate, I, I need to say also that we need to be forgiven and seek forgiveness of those against whom we've sinned, those we have wronged, those we have actually sinned against, and those we have actually wronged. 
Question 87 of the Shorter Catechism is clear. It says, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief, grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. This is not to say that we aren't to lament and express grief and sorrow of the sins of others and, and groups to which we belong. We should and we must do that. But it does mean we are not in need of forgiveness for those sins that we ourselves have not committed. We do not bear because we have not been imputed with or inherited the sins of other people. We bear because we've only been imputed with and inherited the sin of our federal head, who was Adam. And we bear our actual sins that we commit. We're accountable for those thoughts that we think the, the words that we say and the actions that we commit or the, the deeds that we do. And we must own them. We must admit them. We must repent of them. We must seek the forgiveness of those toward whom our thoughts and words and actions have been directed. Those that we've sinned against. We, we must do that. having been forgiven ourselves. And of course, as we exhibit this good work of forgiveness, God is glorified. Christ is exalted. And the church will continue to grow up into Him to full maturity who is our head, that is, Christ. And we will individually be conformed into his image, which is God's will for us.